I'm Romani. I go by Rami for short. This is uh, our guest speaker today, Dr. Hampton. He's a professor at UCSD. Uh, he teaches nutrition, exercise physiology. He's also uh, the PI of his own research laboratory. Uh, just a little bit about the organization that we represent. Um, yeah, make it more normal. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> We're a nonprofit uh, educational organization at UCSD. And right. our goals are to promote exercise. As, an, as a means of uh, healthcare and preventative medicine. It's wonderful. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I, I, just, I also teach metabolic biochemistry. So I teach three big classes and it's in order. So you go from like, you know, Krebs cycle up to like, what do we eat? So it's a, it's a progression actually, but same idea, that's the idea. Okay, carry on, sorry to interrupt. Oh no, no worries. Um, so we also want to foster a professional interest and in development in careers involving sports, health, and uh, exercise medicine. That's wonderful. Fantastic. That's, that's our little school. Um, Romy, what about you? Uh, what about me? <laughs> well, you were each introducing yourself. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, Romani, I'm a fourth year human biology major at UCSD. Yeah. So um, Brad is also human biology. I am. Yeah. Yeah. We're both graduating. <laughs> It's fantastic. Yay. That's yeah. the point. Mm -hmm. okay, yeah, so, great. Yeah. so just a little disclaimer about our podcast. Um, we just wanted to say that none of us are medical professionals or fitness professionals. And the in information that we discussed today consists of just our opinions. And we will hope it educates any of you listeners. And we don't want to anything to be misconstructed as right. medical advice. I'm a fake doctor. I'm a PhD, which stands for piled high and deep. So this is not medical advice. This is interesting speculation about nutrition, fitness, science, and careers. Nicely put. Uh, so I think we kind of wanted to start off just asking you about your journey. So like where you- My journey. How you yes. ended up into like the chemistry, biochemistry, biology field. Yes. What brought yes. you, you know, the whole like- Yes. Well, I had a very a circuitous path, a pretty, a pretty wild path. And I say that, you know, everybody's life, when they look back at it, they go, God, I mean, there's so many aspects to how I ended up here and I wouldn't change any of it, but don't try this at home <laughs> was my, my advice. So for me, you know, I grew up in an affluent town, the Scarsdale, New York, which is a great school system. And, and all of my friends are, you know, pretty successful people, you know, they're, it's just, I think we, and I think it's unfair to think that an environment of success doesn't promote success. And I think a lot of the societal problems we have are people getting people who don't grow up in the, you know, matrix of successful people popping through that false ceiling and, and, and getting, I mean, that's a major societal problem, you know, like it's a sort of educational and opportunity version of the rich get richer, but nevertheless, because I was in that circumstance, uh, I, you know, I, I went to college. And the thing about me, though, is I was always really sort of a screw up. Like I actually was not a very good student in high school. And it turns out that I think a lot of this had to do with things I had that came to a head that I had to figure out and completely change my direction. So a big part of my story is I first when I went to college, I actually went and I wasn't very serious about it. But the, it, it's crazy. The very first class I took on the very first day, it was an 8 a.m. class 
was a chemistry class. And I, to this day, and it was <laughs> way before you were a good idea, probably before your folks were a good idea. I, uh, I went to a, a 8 a.m. chemistry class with no desire to take it. I just thought I have to do this for a major. I knew I wanted to be some kind of biologist. And it was just, just amazing first freshman chemistry class. It would be a sort of the equivalent of 6A at UCSD. And, and I just hope 6A is a quarter as aspiring as this first lecture was. I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday and that was a long time ago. And it was this young PhD right out of Ohio State named Gary Kordofsky, who just gave this amazing lecture about how chemistry is an experimental science, how we know what an electron is, the beautiful, simple experiments that got us from you know phlogiston to molecules and atoms, and it's just it was a, a life changing moment, you know. And I, I I distinctly remember walking away from that lecture, going like, "Wow, I better rethink some of this stuff." And I literally just fell fully on board with the learning chemistry, and I still think chemistry is incredibly awesome. And then my interest sort of gradually uh, matured into sort of biological things. But in the middle of all that, you know, it's important to realize that. Um, I am. I have a, a a syndrome called chemical dependency syndrome. An addict. Okay, I'm a drug addict, and um, I have 37 years clean and sober, which was again before you were a good idea. You missed all the trouble, which is a yeah. really good thing. And you know that. But there was, you know, parts of my life where uh, had they gone the same way as they were going, I'd be dead. I wouldn't be here. And there's a a saying we have in the recovery community that if I had what I deserved, I'd be dead. You know, I mean, what I have is through the grace of the universe providing me luck, opportunity, and accident that got me through that world. And, um, but the great thing is, and I think a lot of this is, applies to lots of career paths. It's very hard to judge what's good and what's bad. At the moment that I, I literally ended up, and this is probably way more than you bargained for, but there is a meaning to this, is I ended up uh, in a pharmacology graduate program. Now this is like one of the worst places for an addict to ever be. You know, it's like, you know, it's like someone with a sugar addiction ending up in a candy shop times a thousand. You know, it was a terrible thing. And it wasn't very long before all I was doing was field work, you know, to put it in a, in a sort of sciencey way. And it was, I got kicked out of that program. And it was, that was the best thing that ever happened to me because I was this close to death's doorstep. I had violated, you know, all kinds of trust from people. I was lying all the time. These are all classic addict phenotypes, if you want to call it that. It's very standard. If you become physicians, you will encounter a substantial number of people who, who have this, this challenge, this syndrome, this permanent state. Whether it's wet wiring, hard wiring, epigenetic, it is pretty much permanent. And it's a, something that one has to deal with as a, a most likely permanent state. I mean, people go into remission from melanoma. So who's to say how permanent everything is? But the fact is the reasonable course of events is to seek long-term recovery, which I did by no, I was very lucky. I was incredibly lucky. So 37, 38 years ago, I got kicked out of grad school, which was the best thing that ever happened to me because I was just completely out of control. Like right now, okay, I weigh a strapping 107 pounds. I weighed 108 pounds uh, and I had all my limbs still. It wasn't because I lost a limb. <laughs> I weighed 108 pounds and I was just covered with needle marks and I was, you know, literally on death's doorstep. And that began my odyssey of, you know, going in a different direction. And it, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because recovery has given me an incredible number of life tools that normal people don't need to have. Like normal people don't need to develop those life tools. So I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, but I'm really happy I have those tools. Like I, it, 
one way to view it is that normal people float in the waters of life and addicts sink, so they have to become really good swimmers. But if you stop swimming, <laughs> you will sink. So there's a trade-off, right? But anyways, what ended up happening is I had to take a, a forced and needed hiatus from graduate school. And, and being in a pharmacology grad program is not the place for a fulminant addict. So I work in a food services business, minimum wage, started figuring out what to do, got into recovery. I, to this day, I still go to a, a support group-based recovery. I'm one of those 12-steppers. I'm not speaking for 12-step recovery. It just worked for me. I think there's a lot of pass up that mountain. And it was a very gradual process. And it's maybe the richest thing I do in my life. It's certainly the most important thing I do in my life is, is involve myself in the recovery community. And that doesn't mean I'm any kind of a leader. I'm just another addict like everyone else. We are completely completely egalitarian. Recovery has no leaders, no presidents, no heads, no gurus. We distribute wisdom and share it with each other. This is why it works so well. But that has given me a ongoing every single day gratitude. I am grateful for every single day I have. The worst day I have is still an incredible uh, source of gratitude. You know, watch, I'll get like hit by lightning and I leave the house. I'm thankful. But anyway, so what ended up happening is while I was getting my shit together to put it you know bluntly this is not medical advice i was working minimum wage and i was in ann arbor michigan i i met someone who got me on the recovery path and that was one of the luckiest things it was actually a person whose laboratory i'd been stealing all sorts of drugs from uh had this sort of you know spiritual sense and helped me find someone who could help me and uh he found someone who was not snowed by my massive science knowledge and you know because addicts use whatever they can to get what they need you know whether it's their attractiveness their money their power their intellect you know their ability to fast talk whatever it is all use that and uh, we use it to an incredible extent and that all has to go away so i incredibly lucky but during that short i for a while i was living in a rooming house i had four dollars in the bank four dollars in the bank so I got a minimum wage job and had a little single room in a rooming house. I built a sleeping loft to double the floor space. <laughs> and I started working at this uh, wonderful restaurant that has grown into this giant business emporium named Zingerman's Delicatessen, Zingerman's uh, uh, Order yeah. Business. You know Zingerman's? Giant roast beef sandwiches, right? I have I, they have all kinds of stuff, but they actually are, are leaders in sort of the slow food movement. Like the two people who founded this business they have they do i think 130 million a year out of ann arbor and they are they are really sort of purveyors of a whole new view of food and i was just uh, working in the kitchen chopping chopping the seven north american vegetables or whatever and i got to know these people and actually one of the owners married me and my wife a couple of years ago he came out here and he, he's done hundreds of marriages and so it's been an incredibly rich thing but that was the sort of petri dish or incubator where I grew into the new version of myself that was, as a friend of mine put it from the old days, he goes, this Randy's not as wild, but this one's gonna live. <laughs> I think that's probably true. And, you know, it, it was, so anyways, during that time, and, you know, so the chemistry was a huge piece, like, like I never lost that, but because it was in the science environment that that happened, I had to take a step back from that. I didn't know what caused what. You know, in that situation, an addict does not know that the primary source of their many life problems is their addiction. They blame everything else and feel the addiction is a response to all those problems. It is. It has to be completely inverted. 
And you know, the help I got learning that was gradual and very patient. And, and I give it freely now to, you know, in the same way. And I take it freely because we need to be reminded of this all the time. But during that time living in my little running, my little rooming house, and I could walk over to work with this awesome environment of people, you know, exploring sobriety, I, um, I started running. And what happened was, I joke, it was the best uninformed decision I've ever made. And you have to put it in context. Now everybody goes running, right? Like back then, you know, there was a couple books out. Jim Fix's book, The Book of Running, was out. He died of a heart attack about five years after that because he had bad cardiovascular. He was an avid runner. There was a few books, very little information. I just always thought it was kind of cool. And I decided for some reason, and I don't know why I thought this was, I was not a big in nutrition. I was not good at eating. I was not, didn't go to the gym. I didn't do any of that stuff. I just said, I'm either going to, I've got to start getting, doing exercise. So I'm either going to roller skate or run. Now you have to understand this was before there were inline skates. Like inline skates are awesome. But back then it was just those clubby looking disco skates, you know? So I rented a pair of those at some sports shop. And like went around the block and went, fuck this. Like, yeah, a few times. It looks ridiculous. I thought this is just way, this is harder than golf even. So I did that for a few days. There was a little concrete track down where I was living. I tried that out. I said, eh, it's okay. And then I put on some just tennis sneakers and went running around the block. And that literally was the beginning from then till now. And I, uh, I just started doing it and it became a major thing. And it's, it turns out it's become sort of a carrier wave is the old radio technology of my whole life. And, and the wonderful analogy is I, I started running towards my future, you know, and not very fast, but I just started running to my future. And, you know, that has been the best thing that I've ever, I mean, I've, I've been very lucky, you know, finding chemistry, getting clean. Getting clean was a major fertilization early on, but that was probably pretty important because it defined who I am. <laughs> but you know, then um, uh, getting clean, learning about chemistry in opposite order, and then starting running, and uh, you know, and then and then figuring that stuff out in my recovery was a huge thing. So so the and then what ended up happening is the running was always there, always just you know, and I I, I'm, I didn't race for about twenty years. I in fact was very disdainful of racing. I thought it was. Well, this competition they're not purists you know i do it for the the spiritual the body thing you know i just i had this very i didn't run with people i ran with people sometimes you know sometimes for fun you know and i just i read books on it and i was just very patient with the process i i'm not a patient person and mm -hmm. i normally but i was very patient with the process i just let it happen and, you know, if any of you, ex I don't know if you guys exercise, but if you do, like running is a constant solving of the puzzles. Like there's always like, oh, my Achilles hurts. Oh, my knee. It's like you've got to solve puzzles, you know, in different shoes. I'll never forget this. The first year I ran, I had a, a, a knee problem, you know, and, and often that happens after about a year, the problems start emerging because anyone can run for a year and then the problems start arriving, you know. And, and I think a big transition for people is, is when they run for about a year, maybe it's different now because the shoes are just so much better. But the first thing that was, there was a fellow, a, a fellow fallen academic in, back in the kitchen. He's gone on to be some kind of a well-known chef. And, you know, he was always into food, but he was a linguistics person for like 10 years. And we both ended up in the same kitchen. So you had pretty high level minimum wage paid uh, prep cooks back there <laughs> talking about language and science and stuff. 
And he knew all about track running. So I told him I had started running and this dude took me out to the shopping mall, the Briarwood Mall in Ann Arbor and said, we got to get you some real shoes. I didn't know anything about, I didn't, you know, it's, it's always just these people who cross your path at the right time, you know, whether it's recovery or chemistry or exercise or whatever that just appear you know, that nonsense about when the student is ready to triggers, I have to say that's been very true. You know, I, I don't like woo-woo mumbo jumbo any more than any other hard-headed science type, but that has been my case. I've crossed paths with the most remarkably lucky people along the way. And this guy took me out to uh, the shopping mall. We went to like one of those shoe places, you know, it's like probably, you know, where they all wear like the referee's outfits. Those are the only shoe paces ever yeah. back then. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it was something like that. And uh, he made me put, and he made me run around the mall. Like this is very advanced. If you go down to you know like uh, Milestone Running now or, or Roadrunner Sports, they'll make you if you're trying on shoes and you have a good salesperson, they'll tell you to go out and run. He was super advanced. This was 38 years ago. He said, or 30, yeah, I I started running the same year I got clean, and it turns out those two things have been incredibly you know beautifully resonant with each other, and. Uh, I, he took me out there and he said, you got to you know, put these on. How do they feel? Run around the mall. I said, what? He goes, just go run. I ran around this mall. And, you know, I, back then no one did shit like that, but I was running around and it, they, it was like the difference between having inflatable tires and wagon wheels. Like the shoes I was running, like, it was like a revelation. I, you know, I still remember like, whoa. So I started running and before I knew it, you know, and gradually I, I'd run like three miles and five and six miles and then seven and eight miles. And you just gradually build it up and it was very internal you know it was fun but after a year I got a knee problem and so I was in this this Zingerman's Deli at the time and there's a very you know a lot of young people who are looking for their direction go to the services industry because you don't need a lot of training to work there it was a wonderful environment a lot of young people it's an exciting new business that these two incredible entrepreneurs who are still very active today put together and you know, we we're all excited about it all these young people and I remember complaining about my running and my knee I said, oh, you know, I know a guy who's running a lot, and uh, he's he's like a podiatrist, you know, and and, uh, and back then there were no running doctors. There was like this podiatrist who's really into running. So I went to his office. He said, run to my office, like run three miles to my office, and then my nurse will videotape your running. And this guy was really advanced too, and he videotaped my running. And the next day, because he wanted me warmed up, so it was a natural gait. And I go into the office, it's like me and 13, you know, 15 old people with screwed up feet because that's podiatrists work with a lot of old people because their feet get all messed up. It was like me, maybe one other runner and all these old people. And I ran there, he filled me. It was very obvious my, I was over pronating massively on one foot. And again, I had no money. I was working minimum wage, you know? And uh, he said, just we'll put something under the arch, you know, before you spend a lot of money on orthotics and that, and for then, for like 15 more years, I was able to run doing that trick. And it was just very gradual. And, um, you know, it's been a, a bunch of puzzles to solve. And I've now run like, I think, 41 marathons, a couple hundred half marathons, a few ultra marathons. I, I really love racing here. Let me show you something. As long as, as, long as it's a podcast, this is uh, our house. There's Carbon. That's our cat, Carbon. <laughs> I've, Carbon? Got, I've got my cat with me, too. Oh, do you? Yeah, this is oh, right. Okay, hey, Carmen, look. What's Carmen? Oh, kitty. Yeah. Carmen's awesome. <laughs> Let's see. This is a, but I wanted to show you this. Oh, here. Here's the lights. Uh, so these are some of my medals. Oh. I'm running. And then these are, 
these are some more. And so this this particular set, okay, this is my rolling desk as I'm lecturing on Zoom now. So uh, so this is fine. I'm trying to run a marathon in every state. So these are the, you'll notice there's a lot of black states I haven't run yet. And then these are the marathons from 50 states, uh, these ones here. So it's about 12, 20 down, 30 left to go. It's slow going. And then this is, uh, this is our gym actually. So there's the treadmill. And this is the 75 inch uh, 4K TV, super critical for, for COVID-19. And then this are, these are my wife's medals. I got married like about a little under two years ago and she has, she runs a bit too. Uh, so oh, there's Carbon, there he is. He's waiting patiently. For, <laughs> he, he, what he does is whenever I'm doing anything, he just comes and stares at me. He just stares quietly like a ninja cat. Yeah, so that, that was my path in exercise. And then what happened was after a few years, I unraveled, you know, because we how do we bundle these things of science, nutrition, exercise? So what happened was after a few years, I very cautiously realized that science had not caused my addiction, but my addiction had caused my, you know, my problems in science and all aspects of my life. So I gradually became ready to um to explore the possibility, because I could have stayed at Zingerman's business organization and <laughs> probably made a lot more than I do now. I mean, they're they're still like roaring along, and they've they've been on Oprah, just all this. You know, they're an incredible group of entrepreneurs, and they're amazing people. But I miss. I realized I miss science, and I I gradually came to the realization that it was my addiction and its active the active addiction I had that was screwing up my science and everything else in my life. And not the not anything else, you know. I, I figured out the order of things, the mechanism, if you want. So, and then just like everything else, I was. Uh, I mean, this is a kind of crazy story, but you know, this is the kind of person I am. I was out running, of course. It was, and in Ann Arbor, you got to understand, Ann Arbor has a. Um, it's like there's like a three day spring and a three day fall and then it's like summer or winter and winter lasts a long time like I love Ann Arbor the town I love to visit there it's a great town but living there you need something to do inside like science or something because you know in February winter's half over <laughs> you'll get a blizzard in April without doubt you know it's even with global warming and it was worse back then so uh, it's like April-ish came and suddenly it was warm out and I worked for these 10 hour shifts and I went out running and ran up this very steep hill. In, in Ann Arbor, there's a, a street called Broadway. There's probably a Broadway in every city in America. And I ran up this steep hill and at the time Park Davis was out there. This was a big drug company that says since closed their doors there and that land is different years. But it just rained. This is a crazy story. I never have experiences like this. I was running and I was really at a loss. I was like, what am I gonna do? What's gonna happen? I don't know what to do. I miss science. I like working here. I don't know what to do. I didn't have any significant others. I just was like sort of in this place and I was comfortable, but restless. Maybe that's a good way to put it. So I was on this long run and I was like this rain washed afternoon and suddenly, I, I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but like the sun came out and I was running and suddenly this sense came over me and I, I promise you this never has happened before. It didn't happen when I was on drugs, <laughs> it never happens. Uh -huh. But suddenly this sense came over me that time had become like an object. Instead of time being a flow of things we walked through or experienced, it was like an, a physical object. And I could examine time back forward. Um, and I, I mean, it doesn't sound, it didn't make any sense now, it doesn't, but it somehow made sense. 
And I could see very clearly that I was going to be a scientist and that the path was clear, that it was. And the thing to tell you is that is number one, well, it wasn't certainty like I think the sun's going to rise tomorrow. It was certainty like I know the sun rose yesterday. Like, and I am an incredibly uncertain person. If we got my wife down here, she'd go, you know, I worry about everything. I'm never certain of anything. You know, science is like, you know, scientists will have 9,000 pieces of evidence to go, we believe that possibly this is happening. Like, that's what we do, you know? And so the idea of being that certain is was weird to me. It was so weird I stopped running. I was like, what? But it also was incredibly comforting because I thought, okay, well, with that kind of certainty, I've been taking drugs for three years, so it couldn't, that can't be the explanation like fat stores, <laughs> you know, it was like, I, I, I don't know. And so then I ran home and to be honest, if nothing else had happened, that probably would have vaporized. But I ran home, this is, the, this is a true story. I ran home and I got to my house. So it was about four miles home, ran home, still thinking like, wow, what a crazy thing. That was crazy. What was that about? I opened my door and the phone's ringing. Back then, phones were attached to the wall. You know, they were like, <laughs> they had wires and stuff, you know? So I walked across to pick up the phone. And it's one of my oldest friends who was one of my best men a couple of years ago. I've known this guy now for 60, uh, 61 years. So I, this is one of my oldest friends who had become a physician. And uh, he had lived in Ann Arbor for a while too, but moved on. And um, he, I swear to God, this was the first person who spoke to me after this realization from time becoming an object that I was going to be a scientist. So you got to put it in that perspective. And I wouldn't, I took, it could be 10 years to tell anyone that story because it's so weird, right? He picked up the phone. He goes, how are we going to get you back into science? <laughs> that was the way he said to me. I'm like, I'm like, whoa. I said, did time become an object for you? No, I didn't say that. I said, it's funny. I was just I was just thinking about that. Like it was that weird. And so then this is even weirder. He said, well, my boss, Chris Rates, he's a professor here at, U at University of Wisconsin. He needs a technician. And so maybe, you know, I was telling him you really love science. And I told him about all the trouble you had, which, you know, I have to be super, like one of the lucky things is I can be honest about this, you know, and that's not a luxury every addict has. Like, you know, do not try this at home. Like don't tell your boss you're an addict, depending on, it's very important to figure that out for each individual. Anonymity is a very powerful idea and it has many aspects, separate conversation. But I picked up the phone, you know, he's talking to me, he goes, well, my boss, you know, runs a lab here and he needs a tech and I told him about you and he wants to speak to you. I'm like, and so that second, I get on the phone with Christian Rates who became my PhD advisor. Like it was like, like literally it was like, you think I'm kidding with the time? Check this out. And so I talked to him and he knew like this guy I'd worked with and he knew that I had had these problems, you know, that I'd gotten clean and had these problems with drugs, which is, was awesome was I didn't have to keep any secrets. You know, we have a phrase in recovery where as sick as our secrets. And there's a, that's probably generally applicable to many people, but for addicts, it can be lethal. And so I, uh, you know, I was very honest with him and I flew out a week later, like I got a little resume and some letters I called, I had been, you know, kicked out of a graduate program. So I had a PhD advisor who, you know, I just put through the ringer because my behavior became increasingly more bizarre and increasingly more screwed up. And, you know, the th anybody who has an addict in their life or an alcoholic will know what I'm talking about. It is incredibly painful for the loved ones, the associates, the colleagues, the friends, the people close, the housemates, whatever. It is unbelievably difficult for all those people, you know. And, and I think a big part of the reason others like recovery is they just have a sense of relief that, oh, that asshole's going to stop doing all that crazy shit. 
you know, my, my bank card is safe. My flat screen safe. My car is safe. My kids are safe. So, you know, but, um, I flew out there, you know, and the guy had, but the guy had done my PhD work with, I got from whose lab I got kicked out of appropriately and said, I'll be glad to write you a letter, but I'll be honest about what happened. I said, I want you to be honest what happened. So I started, I went out there and became a technician and, you know, a technician, you get paid by the hour. I moved to Madison, Wisconsin, where this guy's lab was. I did not realize that Chris Rates was a major figure in lipid biochemistry. Like it's this huge, very well-known, he was just some nerd with a pencil holder and a bad haircut. I didn't know, I was out of it with science. And, you know, a few years later, I tell people I'm working Chris Rates and they go, how did you end up there? You know, it's just this weird, like they all knew who he was. And uh, so what happened is about a, after the summer, I moved out in early summer and I was doing some experiments with them and I, was there on Labor Day. And on Labor Day, I was the only person in the lab and he was totally dedicated. He passed away a few years ago. He's a totally dedicated scientist, just brilliant guy and loved science. It was like everything to him, you know? And he, uh, he, he walks on in the lab and I was there, you know, reading papers. Cause for me, getting back to science felt like this incredible gift. Like I wasn't sure after you get kicked out of grad school, it's a reasonable estimate that maybe going to get back in <laughs> a fair approximation of what might happen you know and again i'm incredibly lucky this all worked out so you know my place in this was high gratitude like like suddenly once again instead of you know you know a, a, a 40 gallon pot of mushroom barley to soup actually what i end up doing is running the office at the zingerman's deli because they realize like this guy's actually probably better with numbers than he is with a with a paring knife maybe we should move him upstairs and i organize the office for them and you know, it was really, it was, they're brilliant managers and they understand how to find the right place for the right people to do things. And this is why they're so successful. And um, so, you know, I, I was there and I remember I had, was really loving me back in science. I loved having, a, suddenly again, I had a stack of papers I could never keep caught up with, which felt like a luxury. Like, you know, we have a, we have a, a phrase, I've heard it in other places, but in recovery that, you know, the quality of our life is measured by the quality of our problem. And having too many papers to read in a laboratory where you're paid to do science is a high quality problem. <laughs> you know, that is not the kind of problem that may, most people in the world have to suffer through. So even then I was very appreciative of that. I remember I walked down to his office and said, uh, you know, I'm wondering if you could, uh, you know, would be willing to write me a letter to go to grad school because I'm thinking of going back, you know, into something like biochemistry. And he said, well, how about you just join my lab right now by this process called direct admit where you don't apply, you just become a member of the lab. And I now know he had a lot of money to do that, like normal people. And he said, and I said, when would I start? He goes, you start tomorrow in the PhD program. So it's like, boom, <laughs> like oh. that. So, so this is all like, this is like literally from that moment on that hill above on Broadway Hill where I had that realization was three months later, I was in a PhD program. Like that was all true. And you know, I actually was telling a neighbor of mine a, a couple of years ago, I lived, I moved to this beautiful home with Marie, but before that I lived in Mission Hills, I had these awesome neighbors. I was telling this neighbor about that story. I, you know, I freely tell it now as weird as it sounds. And I, I said, that was so great. I, I want that to happen again. First of all, that's stupid because I'll probably see exactly when I die. <laughs> so I know I probably should not see that. But she just said, my neighbor said, you don't need it. Someone else needs that now. And I thought, what a wonderful thought that I had exactly what I needed to sort of 
give me the faith to move forward, to take opportunities that seem dubious, like move to Wisconsin, be a technician, try it again. You know, all of that sort of felt right and everything. So then I, you know, I, um, that, that, you know, I ended up in his lab. I became a PhD student. I had a thesis project. And then one day he moved the whole lab. He, he actually said, um, Chris said, I need to talk to everyone in my office. Now, when your PI does this, I've never done that with my lab. Like that would scare the crap out of you. Like, I need to talk to everyone in the world. I remember we all did the death march down the hall to his office. Like, what is it going to be? Do you know what it is? Are we going to get fired? And he sat us all down on the floor, like that scene in the first Iron Man movie. We're all sitting on the floor because there are too many of us. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, uh, he goes, I've gotten a job offer at a company called Merck, which is like one of the biggest pharma companies in the world. And they were at a very high heyday of like very highly integrated science and pharma at that time. They were very science driven. And he said, I've gotten a, a, an offer. They do a lot of lipid, like the statins were developed in Merck, you know, so he's a lipid guy. It made a lot of cholesterol. It made a lot of sense. He said, I, you know, I'm moving there. I made, they gave me an offer I can't refuse. And uh, the good news is all of you can come to Merck and finish your degrees or your postdocs there in New Jersey. They'll move you there. And my people are all from New York. I'm from New York. So for me, it was like this fantastic opportunity to have my family and friends and my science all in the same place. That normally doesn't happen when you're that age. You're flying around doing grad school here, this and that, and you're separated from everything. But uh, I thought that was awesome. And he, he confessed to me a few years before he died that had we said no, he wouldn't have gone. But he made it sound like we had to say yes. So we all went. <laughs> about half the lab moved to New Jersey. And uh, that's where I learned about the kind of things that I explored in my postdoc that led to my research here. So I ended up at Merck, absolutely incredible science environment. And then I, uh, I did a postdoc in a guy named Jasper Ryan's lab, who was a top yeast geneticist. He's still around, he's a brilliant, incredible scientist. And he uh, had a, some really interesting, his, his lab worked this way, like the way yeast is, yeast is this amazingly powerful organism to do all kinds of stuff. So his lab was full of people who just went to him and said, I'd like to study this problem using the power of yeast genetics. Like, you know, yeast is a eukaryote. And if you have a problem that's, that's solvable in yeast, that is definitely the place to solve it. If, you know, you can't study the immune system in yeast, but if you want to study protein turnover, misfolded proteins, nuclear dynamics, epigenetics, cell cycle, secretory pathway, anything that happens in yeast, that is definitely a smart place to study it because it's just so... You know, way before CRISPR, we were modifying genes at the level of base trivially because of the way that organism works. So now CRISPR has caught everyone else up to yeast, which is great. It's a wonderful thing. But uh, I went to his lab and, and started studying the regulation of a, a called HMG coi reductase, which is a, a sterile regulating. It's the, sort of it's the, it's the target of the statins, and I knew about it from Merck. And it turns out it undergoes this regulated degradation that has everything to do with how cells detect and destroy misfolded proteins. And your misfolded proteins is a whole other incredible, I mean, that was super lucky too, because misfolded proteins is this, you know, it's called protein quality. It's about aging and Alzheimer's and, you know, neuron damage. So there's this whole other aspect to what we've been doing all these years that, you know, has given me at least two or three hats to wear, that, you know, the cholesterol regulation that and so what's happened lately though, is so it, so that path is very, you know, beautiful molecular biology, basic important problems with lots of medical applications or how do cells detect and degrade misfolded proteins and all that stuff. 
But the exercise, you know, and running had always been in the background. And what ended up happening, and this is where it all sort of comes together, at least right now, is, um, you know, I've never, my running and my exercise have always been separate from my science. Like they've always been separate things. And I've never really, you know, thought that much about exercise and science, even though obviously there's a whole science of exercise. I never even learned much about it. But um, what happened was I, um, I've been teaching biochemistry, metabolic. I teach metabolic biochemistry. So this BIPC 102 that everyone hates, it's like the OCHEM for, for biological science. And it really should be, you know, like OCHEM should really be more geared towards metabolism, but that's a whole other separate conversation too. But um, what, what ended up happening is I gradually, I've always loved teaching a lot. And running a lab is great, you know, and, and your department likes when you run a lab because you get these grants that provide a lot of money to the university, plus you're training scientists, which is fantastic. Like, you know, science needs scientists and scientists need to be trained by other scientists. It's like a guild. And also it's incredibly wonderful. Every single day is different. Like running a laboratory is an awesome privilege. You know, it is, it is a, a, a high luxury problem, you know, running a laboratory. And, uh, but what ended up happening is I gradually, the desire to teach more has, has, has grown. And I've always was nervous to do that because, you know, I sort of thought, what about my line of inquiry? What about the lab? What about getting the grant money? All that stuff. It's all positive. And there's a lot of peer support and peer recognition in that. But just a number of things all happened that made it unfold that way. So, so first of all, you know, as I say, I've been running and, and Pack Hall, where I'm at Pacific Hall, is a fantastic place to run because there's a, a full lockered bathroom with a shower in the basement. So you and then you, you you know you run about 30 yards and suddenly you're you know going down towards you know Scripps Pier and I mean it's an absolutely brilliant place to run. You run a little bit north down to Del Mar Beach if you want to get eight miles in. It's like or the Eucalyptus Grove if you want to keep it flat and shit. Like it's just you know it is, and also San Diego is like is like the best endurance sports city in the world. And, and I, just to back up a little, when I got my PhD, I decided I was gonna do a postdoc. So a postdoctoral fellowship is usually where you decide on a line of inquiry. And I interviewed, and the only two requirements were, it had to be in California uh, because I wanted to run all year round. And also California was like really sort of epicenter, the ground zero if you want molecular biology. Molecular biology really started this is arguable, but in California, like in San Francisco, Genentech cloning and that kind of stuff, you know, and uh, PCR was invented, you know, when Carrie Mullis was driving up to Mendocino one night, like there's all this. So what I noticed is the California scientists at that time were just super comfortable with molecular biological approaches. And I had never cloned anything. I was like, I'm like, a, I'm a primitive man. So I decided going to California and learning molecular biology to run and to do that would be the thing. And so my, the projects I explored in my choice of a postdoc were very diverse. One was like T cell biology, another was like bacterial signaling, another was just HMG coir reductase degradation that I knew about from Merck and I ended up doing that. And again, how incredibly lucky, because at the time it sounded like a pretty weird project. Like, I don't know, like, I remember the first day I entered Jasper's lab and Jasper Ryan's lab up in Berkeley, which is still happening, it's like this, super vibrant place full of all these there were postdocs studying the dog genome and and modifications of the ras protein like anyone who came to him with a cool project 
who could get some money were welcome there. So it was this amazing environment of all these. And I know many of these people to this day, and they've all risen to these incredible positions. It's just, it's an amazing, it was a real cauldron of, uh, you know, sort of creating that stuff. But um, I remember the first day I was there, Elaine Ostrander, who's become a major figure in animal, in non-model animal genetics, who's an incredible geneticist at NIH. I remember I, I explained to her what I was going to be doing. She goes, that sounds hard. <laughs> that's like the first thing anyway so it was like but you know I, it all worked out and so i was you know i was um and here's another beautiful piece of luck so you know douglas forbes she's a cell biology teacher uh she's in the biology department she teaches cell biology and she's a you know very big involved in running our division or you know involved in decisions of our division and she's very very strong voice for diversity and women in science and you know she's just awesome and she also was one of the first people ever to study the 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 nuclear envelope as an entity that assembles and reassembles she's a you know major figure in cell biology she was doing a sabbatical in jasper's lab the first year i was there and we shared the same bench like i knew who she was i was even thinking of maybe doing a postdoc with her so she's just someone I met along the way. This is why you got to go meet people. Like Facebook is not enough. <laughs> and so I knew her. And four or five years down the pike, I had this sort of cool project. Not a lot of papers, just a neat project that I had real curatorship of. And she called Jasper and said, you, who's you, who you got in your lab? Who's you know, doing interesting thing? And he said, me. So they hired me at UCSD. And I came down and I've never left. But what ended up happening with this great science thing is I just the desire to teach, you know, has grown. And and usually, you know, and this is a good reason they have professors just teach one big class a year. Like I taught 102 for years and then a smaller graduate class. And that makes sense because science requires a lot of time and a lot of open space to think and to be creative. That's perfectly sensible to me. But I always thought, wouldn't it be cool to teach more stuff? So I noticed there was an exercise physiology class. And I thought, that looks interesting. So a professor named Kathy French was teaching it. And she uh, was, has been, I've known her for many years. And I went and sat in on her class, which was like a disaster because it's like me and a bunch of people 40 years younger than me sitting around. So I already looked like, I stuck out like a, I'm sure people are going, whose grandfather is that? Like, when, what is he doing in our class? Like, it was just, so I tried to keep like it really on the DL and Kathy kept calling on me. She was like, Randy, maybe Randy has an answer to why insulin does this. I'm like, I don't know anything. So I, it was totally, it was very kind of her because she was trying to include me in the discussion, which was very sweet, but I, it just wasn't, I freaked out and left. Then I tried to watch the podcast and learn that you can't learn anything from podcasts. At least I can't, because I'm just way too, you know, I'm like, what? Huh? Like, I'm way too distractible. This is why this COVID-19 sequestration is terrible, because home is like time for food and fun. <laughs> so working is very, like, distraction central, right? So I've had to work around that. I'm getting better. But I knew about this course, and then I, and Kathy, who did a great job teaching it, you know, I could tell it was a cool course just from the few things I sat in on. She stopped teaching it. She sort of semi-retired and stopped teaching it. And so it was just lying dormant and it wasn't a requirement for anything. So it was just lying dormant. It's called BIPN 108. And I, I, I reached out to her and said, is this, is it possible that I could teach this class? And so now I actually went beyond my teaching requirement. My teaching requirement is one big class, like 102 and a little class. So I said, but I would gladly add that to be able to do this. And then again, this is like, you know, it's, 
you know, the difference between yesterday and tomorrow is just inches and seconds, like little teeny things have happened that we, I mean, the comfort in that is you can never plan out these events that happen, you know, to, to get you from yesterday to tomorrow. They don't, there's just, there's actually a great song by a country band called Rascal Flats called The Broken Road, you know, about, about, you know, how this constantly accidental problematic breaks in the road get us exactly where we're going to be. You know, it's a sappy song, but it's a really wonderful philosophical sentiment that we can't really map our path because so much happens that we have no control over. It's comforting to keep our eyes open for those breaks in the road and which way they're going to take us. But um, so I said I would, you know, would do this and I signed up to do it and I changed the name. It was called Exercise Physiology, which I thought that's way too daunting a name. So I changed it to the Biology and Medicine of Exercise. And I had to get it approved. And I thought this is going to be great. But the reason I really took on the class was to start learning about it. Like this is the dark secret is I thought if I have to teach this class, I will definitely learn a lot about exercise physiology. And, but the trouble with this is I am a major procrastinator. Like I am the worst, and you know, you'll be amazed. There are people who study procrastination. There are psychologists and social scientists who study procrastination the only good news is everybody procrastinates so that's at least the good news right but the reason i really oh i just heard i heard sort of an echo of me okay so so the i actually just let it lie dormant for quite a while like i had a year i thought it's great i'll map it out i'll read the literature well that didn't happen i just sort of let it lie dormant but around middle of the summer this guy emailed me who's an actual exercise physiologist and um, his name is Simon Shank. He runs a research laboratory in the, I think, osteopathy uh, uh, program. He's a, a bona fide researcher, grant-driven lab, a serious muscle physiologist who's, who's has a PhD in exercise physiology. Like he's, a, he's the real thing. And he said, you know, could I teach this course? I said, well, I'm teaching this version, but, uh, you know, maybe you could teach the summer version. And I thought, that's great. I could take it with him and <laughs> actually learn it. But that didn't come to pass, but he basically you know, said, if you need any help, and he was instrumental in that class not crashing and burning, because I didn't know enough to teach at the time. I now do, and I'm learning a lot, and, I, and we got through it. We, you know, together, me and the class, the first class figured it out. But then it just opened this incredible world of integrating science and what I love. So one of the things we do is we couldn't do it this year, but every year I have the class form a team uh, for a 5K. We call ourselves the 108ers. We've done this uh, three times in a row now where we, the two incentives are, if you beat me in the 5K, you, uh, I will contribute five more dollars to the Triton Scholarship Fund. So we did the Triton 5K. And uh, everybody who signs up for the, for the race, which is the quarter after the class, they all can come to Marie and my house for a party, which is just awesome huge party except 100 undergraduates can eat more food than you can possibly compute you've never seen anything like it. noah would have gone like i just have an arc i can't oh, forget it so you know it was like but that you know it really sort of integrated those two things because exercise is really something that we all should be doing and also it's all pre-meds and you people more than anyone know that this is something that is really lacking in modern medicine. And then they, there's a number of reasons for it that I'd be happy to tell. I mean, I just have theories. I don't know, I don't know <laughs> what causes it, but I, I have ideas about this, but 
then what I was saying was, and that kind of worked, John, and people already think, like, you're nuts. You're teaching two big classes in graduate cell biology with people like, what's wrong with you? I said, I know, it's just great. And then I have this postdoc who made these beautiful discoveries, you know, these very high profile papers. And I thought, you know, what would be great is if she took most of the research, you know, the line of inquiry that I've been working on and, and you know, put her own, her own spin on it and made it hers, she could have a job here. She could, you know, like they wanted to hire her because she's an awesome scientist. And they, um, they hired her and I made a deal with her that I would, you know, my lab would no longer work on most of that stuff that she had discovered. I mean, if I was 50, I wouldn't have done that. I would have continued working on it. But I'm 65 years old. I said, this is an opportunity now to shift the balance more towards the teaching of people and exploring these bigger issues. I don't, I think science, the details of science, the molecular details, are what science is. I have no disdain for people solving those atom by atom structural molecular puzzles that tell you how a molecular device or a cellular device works. It's critical. Everything else is, it's all in the nuance. And I realize that we live in a political environment where nuance is disparaged, even criticized, like experts are somehow, you know, anathema to processes. But we know as scientists that the nuances, the details, the exact ways the experiment is done, the exact information that seems to be being told to us from the experiments is critical. And so that's great. But I said, if all of that, you know, were being done by a younger, you know, more uh, uh, newer person with newer approaches, a bigger vision about what, where to go next, the line of inquiry will now extend way beyond my death. You know, like, like Sonia Neal's name, she's doing incredible work. It's a super active group of young, really excited people. I'm like their science grandfather. <laughs> I don't ever darken the door of the lab. I don't want them to say, it's here, it's here lurking. But, uh, you know, they're going in exciting directions. And the cool thing is, you know, 20 years from now, I'll be 85. And uh, that line of inquiry will be at full blast, you know. So that's a beautiful thing. But it also freed me up to teach more. So another crazy coincidence i'm like i hope i'm not talking too long i guess we're good but uh crazy coincidence i was i you know another thing we're allowed to do i I mean being allowed to teach people is such a privilege like it is such you know who gets to talk to 400 people twice a week it's like giving a ted talk twice a week all year long right no and i mean maybe that will change i'm hoping we all get comfortable with being in crowds again and that goes away i mean it worked after the spanish flu and that was a lot worse than this one so my hope is we will all you know realize we are social animals social hierarchy contact is important but uh, again another crazy coincidence like i had thought gee you know it would be really cool to teach that nutrition class because Sort of the, the troika is biochemistry, like the root carbon, Krebs cycle, glycolysis, pentose phosphate pathway, amino acid, metal, like that's the molecular stuff that's being driven by all this. And then exercise is a beautiful lens through which to look at that and physiology. And nutrition is really the big, you know, the next big shell out from that. So I thought it'd be so cool to teach three classes to teach biochemistry and then exercise physiology and nutrition like that would be neat but i was scared of that i don't know i'm not sure so it's sort of a my toe in that water we're allowed to teach these classes called freshman seminars and a freshman seminar is just the most wonderful idea i guess you see how i think they have them all over the uc system it's this idea that when college students come new freshmen they're completely freaked out by the idea of these professors who you know know a lot or i mean this is all 
completely not true. But in the minds of a freshman, it's probably pretty daunting to go to a class with two, three, four hundred people and have someone up there giving their twice a week TED talk and you know expounding and they're often world's experts in at least some niche of something. It's terrifying. So the idea of the freshman seminar was to allow freshmen to get comfortable with faculty up close, you know. So the cool thing is a faculty member can come up with almost any idea to teach a freshman seminar. Like I discovered this. Uh, the by experimenting like the first freshman seminar I ever taught and I promise you I'm not an expert was called uh, called no but I saw the movie and what we did is we read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein which is this actually an incredible book it's only 100 pages long and Mary Shelley was like 22 she was like in your age bracket when she wrote this she was a single unwed mother like just really interesting and the Frankenstein myth the Frankenstein story is basically a cultural icon and I, all I can say is if you read it, you will be happy with it because it's a totally different story. Like the monster is this sympathetic, misunderstood person, you know, who is you know, trying to make his way in the world and failing. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing, amazing book. It's amazing that someone who was 22 wrote that book too. But so what we did is we read that book together and then we watched like five different Frankenstein movies together, you know, to sort of compare it. It was super fun. Then a few years later, I taught one called Want Fries with That, in which we read Fast Food Nation, which is an iconic book about sort of the dangers of industrialization and the food supply. It's a deep book, um, still still very topical. But we read that book together, and uh, and we I served fast food to everyone. And so that was a you know freshman summers are very small. They're like you know seven or eight classes. You meet for an hour. It's very low pressure. And basically, the freshman it's twenty people limited. So the young people get to meet a professor and hang out. They're lost and they're really cool. Um, so then I, I actually had a fight with, I was gonna do one called Depictions of the Corporation in Hollywood, where, where we're gonna study how corporations are depicted bad and good in Hollywood. But uh, the film department got really mad at me and didn't want me to do that. And at that time I was trying to get tenure. And you know, there's a very wise, a very wise idea that you should choose your battles. Like I thought I could fight this but, you know, cause it's not that I'm an expert, it's that I have questions and I want to explore them with another person. Like non-expertise is allowed when you're exploring something new. Columbus didn't know where he was going, neither did Magellan. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, um, but I, so I let that go. And it had been years later, I finally realized I'd like to teach a freshman seminar again. So I taught one on sugar. Now sugar is probably the most, interesting topic you can come up with in nutrition because there's this whole sociocultural overlay you know this this incredible ramping up from eating less than a, like a, a a few ounces a year to 50 pounds a year in the last than 100 years i mean it's drastic driver of our metabolic problems it's not the only but it's one it's also the whole slave triangle between the caribbean you know the caribbean and africa and the new world was like the the reason sugar became the product it is because it's a brutal slavery triangle that you know basically drained the resources of the British Empire and it was just it's an incredible sociocultural story overlaid on top of a nutritional story so I taught this freshman seminar on sugar and what happened was it was in a building I never go to it was this APM building you know the uh, applied physics and mathematics or whatever you know where the computer people are and there's biology professors in there. We've leaked into that building. So I was teaching my freshman seminar there and I walked by this guy, Nigel Crawford's office. Now Nigel 
had taken the nutrition course like 10 or 15 years ago and really beefed it up. Like he went to UC Davis for a sabbatical where they have a great nutrition department and he modernized it. You know, he's also a plant-based eater. He's a vegan. So he's, you know, he's very interested in, you know, the overlay of those things. So I walked by him. I said, Nigel, the last time I had, the last time I had talked to him, we were flew on a plane together. When you're a scientist, you get to travel a lot. Be a scientist, see the world. So I was on a plane and there was Nigel. I sat next to him and he was just starting the nutrition course. It was probably 15 years ago. He goes, yeah, I'm going to redo the nutrition course. It'd be so interesting. There's so much science in it. It's all this epidemiology that no one gets. And it's really important and it's great. I said, that sounds great. And then I didn't talk to him for like 10 years. So I walked by his office. I say, Nigel, listen, you know what I'm doing? I'm teaching a freshman seminar on sugar. This is like right up your alley, right? Because you're like the nutrition guy. So we talked for about half an hour about sugar and that kind of thing. And I said, what's going on with nutrition? He goes, well, I'm retiring, you wanna teach it? <laughs> so again, it was like, I had no idea that he was retiring, that it was available. So at that moment I said, I would like to do that. And so now I'm teaching three classes and I'm insane and I don't know what's gonna happen, but, but what I realized and now, so the funny thing is the exercise was complete on the back burner and now sort of exercise, nutrition, wellness, is my main focus. So I'm, I'm, I'm evolving this way. So, you know, and what I've come to realize, and this is really what I'm excited about, is I have the opportunity to talk to 400, you know, let's say, let's say seven, 280 pre-meds twice a week, because it's probably 70% pre-meds, you know, whatever. And, and everyone else in those classes, biomedical professions tomorrow, people who are science aware, just citizens who need to think about this. I mean, I'm really not, you know, I'm very agnostic about what people's paths are. But the problem is, and you folks know this, so we're coming full circle back to EIM, is that the two questions a doctor should ask, when you go to a doctor's office, I have never had this happen. I, I don't go to doctors that often. Now that I'm older, I want to get more on top of my numbers and, and what my normal state of physique. I normally, you know, you normally go to a doctor when there's a problem. And that's that's itself is a problem because it's all about fixing what's broken as opposed to maintaining what's working. So wellness is maintaining what's working. Medicine today is fixing what's broken, often with a single drug or a pill, and that's hugely problematic. But it, it struck me just a few weeks ago, I was telling someone is the two questions a doctor should first ask you. The first thing they should ask you after, you know, after they patch up whatever wound you have is like, what are you eating and how are you moving? What are you eating? How are you moving? In that order, because probably those, those are the, you know, the, they're both super important. And I have never, ever, ever had a doctor ask me what I eat, if I exercise. I usually tell them I run marathons and then they go, oh, they can't do that. That's bad. <laughs> like it's, it is so inverted. So, you know, to me now, the mission is to, you know, get a conversation going where, you know, anytime you say something, if you're lucky, if five people remember what you're saying, like one of the things that really depresses me, and I get it, is I'll talk to students and I'll go, who taught your molecular biology class? I go, ah, a professor. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's incredible. And to me, it's like, I, you know, and I was lucky. I went to a little liberal arts college where every professor was awesome. I can remember every professor I had in college. I'd say pretty much every single one. 
because they each had such intense impact. There was one Bible studies teacher because I had to take that for distribution. I don't remember his name, but I remember many of the things he said, you know? And so it was, uh, so the mission is to at least try to penetrate 10% of the people that the things they need to be asking are, what are you eating? How are you moving? And to start shifting medicine over to the maintenance improvement of health as opposed to the removal of illness. I mean, removal of illness, I, if I have a broken leg, I'm gonna go to a doctor. I'm not gonna go to someone burning sage. You know, like if I, you know, if I have high blood pressure, I'm gonna go to a doctor, but I may also go to a nutritionist, you know? And so I, I just, I think one of the things I tell the students in, um, in, in the nutrition classes, I say, and again, it was rough last year, and now I'm getting it better. I'm very excited about this year's version because we're going to talk much more about the food supply and the things that are killing, you know, that are affecting 70% of people in the world, not just America, but also classic nutrition, 800,000 people on our planet starving. So, you know, nutritional deficiencies are really important also. So, but the exciting thing is the mission to me is to start a conversation with tomorrow's leaders about this kind of thinking. And I, I'm not alone. Like you, you know, you go on the pod sphere, there's all sorts of exciting things around others. I just feel like one little tile in the mosaic, but I think that I'm in a unique position to be allowed to do this. And, you know, because I actually am an avid exerciser, I mean, the thing I would love to see is every student start getting fit and start thinking about what they eat. And it took me, I mean, I didn't start thinking about why I ate until 10 years ago. And that was because I needed to lose weight to become a more effective runner. So I started, you know, first just, I started counting calories just as a demonstration at 102, that if you restrict your calories, you'll lose weight, you know, calories and calories out. I noticed I'd help my running a lot. And then gradually I've become much more aware of this. So it's been this really inverted process where I had like sort of hobbies and a lack of interest in science. And they've come together very in this, I mean, now I'm 65. I'm thinking about getting a master's degree in exercise physiology. I think that would be super fun. You know, I, I'm 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 playing with that idea. You know, to be unageist, but that's the thinking. So that's probably more than enough out of me. That's uh, yeah. So wow. Now what? So that uh, <laughs> that's a journey. <laughs> It's my journey. Yes. Yeah, it's a journey. Well, I included all those other questions. You yeah, had, no, I mean, you, too, you I think, covered you know, like so. all the questions that we had written down. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Well, I actually made a list on my computer on the wall and checked it out. So I was oh, sort of aware. Well, thank you. It was you. a little method. Yeah. So, but yeah. Uh, so, so you were talking about like informing, informing students about exercise and nutrition and stuff. That's one of the things that we're really trying to do through our organization. And we're trying to incorporate that. I mean, this is just a big idea and we don't know if this could happen, but through uh, student health services so that when students yes. who are on campus going to see their campus physician. They'll hear, what are you eating and how are you moving? I know, I know. You're referring them to like the rec center or to other activities on campus. And well, there's, so there's also an incredibly strong lifestyles medicine and nutrition group in the med school. So one of the other problems that I'm trying to work on is there's really almost, it's like a Venn diagram with no overlap between the medical school and the undergraduate school. And I now know people who, you know, are very involved in, in modern nutrition and very involved in, you know, there's a field of medicine called lifestyle medicine that's really about what are the impacts of lifestyle choices and lifestyle actions on your health outcomes? You know, 
And it's definitely more geared towards wellness, but but also, you know, avoiding pathology. And uh, so one of the, there's a guy named Ken Vitali, who's a young physician. You, you know him. He, I think he's involved in your group also. Yeah, he's, yeah, and he, <laughs> he's, he's amazing. He and I, he's also East Coast, so I relate. But uh, <laughs> of course he's from East Coast. Ken Vitali, hey, I need that truck full of VCRs back. You know, so I, but he's, uh, he's very interested in some sort of interfacial thing. We're toying with the idea of trying to put together a phys an exercise lab, which would be really interesting, you know, some sort of a, an actual lab course where students could, you know, like measure their VO2 max, look at their fitness improver over a 10 week period, you know, do those kinds of things. The trouble is those things take a lot of money, but, you know, physicians have access to resources as, as well. So it's an interesting idea. And also I have an idea that, you know, the age of the small device, like this Garmin watch I have, this is actually a GPS watch. This thing can measure like your VO2 max, your pulse ox. Like I'm wondering if there isn't, you know, an Apple watch plus that plus sort of home-baked Fitbit approaches to do e-fizz on the fly, you know, that, that would be on the cheap. That would be a very interesting idea. And I think I put it this way. I went to this e-park place that where it costs 200 bucks to measure your VO2 max. And I made a little movie for my class. And it's like, you know, VO2 max is basically you run until you fall off the treadmill. So the class loves that. Cause I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. but my VO2 max was like 50, which is killing uh, 50 mLs per minute per kilogram, which is for my age, pretty good. Like that's like 99th percentile. So that's good. I mean, it's terrible for like an actual athlete. They're up in the eighties and nineties, but for an old guy, it's okay. But what's funny is my watch said it was 51 when I measured my watch that just does an algorithm plus your heart rate and your average, you know, full exercise range predicted. <laughs> so it's like shit that the watch costs as much as the VO2 max test and it told me the same. <laughs> so I think the point of that all is that I think there might be ways to do something like that on the cheap, which would be very interesting. As long as no one has a heart attack and we don't get sued by some parent, and we'll need lots of releases, you know. Disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, disclaimer. But so that that's sort of the mission now is to sort of move more into that, you know, yeah. being part of that dialogue because sure. I think it's so important. And um, you know, I mean, I ate crap. I am like the, the positive control group. Like I ate crappy food for decades. Like when when I would come home from my postdoctoral work, which I loved. I mean. I basically was there till like two in the morning. I'd sleep five or six hours and go back to the lab, you know, and, and I loved it. And I was running a lot. But, you know, in my house, you'd have five or six Domino's pizza boxes stacked up. That was my normal, just whatever was cheap and I could eat. And it was, you know, and it was brought to me so I didn't have to do anything. That's how I ate. I ate terribly for years, you know. I'm hoping I flush the system out because. My wife is now very into, I got married just two years ago. So I'm like way off schedule, <laughs> you know, like it's, that's awesome. That's the fifth best thing. That's the fifth important thing that happened to me was meeting Marie. You know, she's a force of nature and um, just an amazing person. And she has decided we're going to be, I call it secular vegans. Like we're not really preachy about it. And occasionally we'll eat some meat, like some tuna, but we pretty much eat only plant-based and, um, you know, one of the enigmas there is what is this with like modern diets? Like the keto diet and the plant-based diet are almost diametrically opposed. They're about as different. You can have a keto plant-based diet, but it is very challenging. And most of the time they're very separate. And yet you have people gaining enormous benefits from both. What's that all about? Like that, 
you know, there's a wonderful book by a guy named Michael Pollan called The Omnivore's Dilemma. And it, it is a book that is really worth reading that um, it's really sort of, he explores the fact that because humans can eat anything, you know, uh, the choices of what to eat are very daunting. Like if you're a koala bear, all they eat is a certain subset of the, of the 600 species of eucalyptus trees. I just learned this a few days ago. Is there, not only do they only eat eucalyptus leaves, they're super picky about which eucalyptus trees they'll eat. Like, and yet they're, so they don't have a problem. They just need to find the leaf. But us, because we can eat anything, and you know, the anthropological code is, you know, people are the paleo diet. You, know, you can find cultures, you know, indigenous cultures that are living the way they have for centuries that eat nothing but blood and milk. You can find ones that eat nothing but you know ocean mammals. You can find ones that eat nothing but plant-based foods. And you know, none of them have any diseases. So it's like there's a really bizarre and highly fractured code we need to crack. And you know, I think the microbiome might have something to do with it. I think um, you know, choice of food, I think the lack of, I think processing and industrialization of food is a giant feature in, in the problem with the food supply yeah. now. I mean, you know, I think it is, and one of the things to think about that I'm going to try to teach this quarter is, you know, it really, if you follow the money, it is an incredibly important aspect of the whole thing. But how are we going to get people more into eating natural, whole, you know, unprocessed plant-based foods? And one of the interesting places that's come up is Kaiser Permanente. So Kaiser Permanente is a huge health organization. They're in the billions of dollars. And they've actually started espousing plant-based eating as a really good way to sort of just shift the risks of many illnesses, you know, more. And it benefits them because they're an insurance company. The insurance companies have realized that, you know, if people are healthier, we make a better profit. And if we don't have to give them as many drugs, we don't have to pay for infinity and they don't get sick. So their, you know, their impetus is reasonable from a mercantile point of view, but it's also probably well thought out. It's a lot of doctors. Okay, so I thought, this is it. This is the wedge. Like what powerful entity is gonna do this? Like I used to think the government, but we've been set back a bit because we have an incredibly vibrant and active president who eats Kentucky Fried Chicken and Diet Coke. I don't know how he does that. My theory is he's secretly a vegan and just dresses up like someone who eats Kentucky Fried Chicken. That's my theory. <laughs> that would explain the orange color. He eats a shitload of carrots, right? But whatever. And, you know, he, I wish I had the energy of that, that person. Like, he is, <laughs> there's something to it. But I'm not going to start eating Kentucky Fried Chicken. But, um, you know, so I thought there, I thought maybe Kaiser Permanente. But the depressing thing is if you look at the, you know, the, the, the five or six big food conglomerates that control global food, they dwarf Kaiser Permanente. They are in the trillions of dollars. They are thousands of times bigger than any of the big HMOs. So it's still a David and Goliath situation, even when you have a company like Kaiser Permanente. And, you know, I am a Kaiser participant and they have their gain, their goods and their bads. I have a great doctor. I've been lucky that way. But, um, you know, I'm not, you know, I think HMOs have their own set of problems, but if they start espousing, you know, healthiness for whatever reason, real healthiness, like wellness driven behavioral and lifestyle choices, I'm good. That might be the tip of the spear. You know, another idea would be industrializing plant-based foods. So at least people get comfortable with that. So but this could go on forever. I need to eat dinner, actually. So are there, are there, 
are there closing uh, here's carbon again are there closing questions or i mean you kind of you kind of touched on everything we wanted mm -hmm. to ask okay <laughs> but it's, you know what they say is that old people have more and more to say to fewer and fewer people so i'm sorry i'm sorry if i rambled like no it was great that. very insightful <laughs> okay well good i hope there was some value in it and i actually i'm glad because i have to email ken vitale he's on my whiteboard here look I'll show you. He's right here. There's, there's carbon again. There's carbon meowing. He's, we call it barking. Let's see. Here's here's Ken. Ken Vitale even got a, a circle and a square to check the box because I need to I need to talk to him soon about this. So hopefully this will inspire inspire. And you know people like him, the physicians who you know actually want to do more teaching, especially early like the undergrads, is great because that's where we. You know, need to start pushing the needle, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay. All righty. Name drop us. I, I'm sure you'll be happy to know that you're on. Definitely. I will. Yeah. I, absolutely. EIM. 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 Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Hampton. Okay. Uh, for I'm so you can call me Randy. Everyone, yeah. I'm only in trouble when I'm Dr. Hampton. So okay. <laughs> um, well, see you all, and anybody who watches this in the future, uh, call me, email me, whatever. You know, so thank you so much. Yeah, all right, definitely. Have a great socially distant weekend. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. Bye. Okay. Bye. Be sure to check out our latest video podcast on our YouTube channel, Exercises Medicine at UCSD. Follow us on social media, EIM at UCSD on Instagram and EIM at UCSD on Facebook. Subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, and the link should be available on our Facebook page. It's a fun weekly read that covers common injuries, sports medicine trivia, food recipes, and more. Thanks for tuning in. Hope to see you next time.